fail. Fail as often as you can. And it's not about success. I think success is highly overrated. And people's measure and metrics of success is just changing so constantly. I think we shouldn't be so worried about the success as much, as much about failing and falling as we can. Because that's... I mean, if you're going to have fun failing, I don't think you have anything to be scared about. We could have never predicted the events of last year. And while many of the effects continue to be felt, we've learned to adapt personally and professionally. As a pastry chef, the way I approach my business has transformed tremendously. So I'm talking to entrepreneurs from various industries to follow their journeys, find parallels, and learn from their insights along the way. I'm Pooja Dhingra and you're listening to my podcast, No Sugar Coat, where the sugar stays in the kitchen and out of the conversation. Today on No Sugar Coat, I'm chatting with chef and restauranter Sandesh Reddy. He has come a long way from his disastrous first attempt at baking and now running 10 brands at a whopping 100 locations across Chennai, Bangalore, Hyderabad and Kolkata. We share experiences from 2020, our five-year plans and talk about how he went from an engineering student to ace entrepreneur. Hi, Sandy. Hey, Pooja. <laughs> How are you? Excellent. So I usually start each conversation by, you know, uh, asking the guests if they remember when they first met me. Well, if they've met me. But we have. So do you remember? We have, the, of course. We've met multiple do, times. Do, do, you, do you remember? Hyderabad. The, Hyderabad. Fellows introduction in Hyderabad. Yes. Road to GES. Yeah. Road to GES. Yeah. So both of us are Ink Fellows and we were there. And it was uh, part of this, this, you know what I'm going to make you do, right? Uh, I'm going to make you do a shameless introduction. Oh, God. <laughs> no, no, no. Pass. Time out. In, in, true, in true ink fashion, we must do it. Uh, so we're going, to, we're going to start with shameless introduction. Come oh, on, Sandy. God. If you were... Th- I, thankfully, I'm mm. the one that does it once a year in a closed room where nobody else but the people <laughs> in the room get to hear it. <laughs> now that's going to change because... Uh, but I want to hear the best shameless introduction. I don't want to hear like a watered-down version. Sandy, come on. We uh, can now, do this. Now I'm say proud daddy of a three-month-old boy oh. who is a real rascal. Um, chef restauranter. Um, I run a bunch of restaurants with my wife, Mansi, mostly based out of Chennai, but now we have presence in Bangalore, Hyderabad, and Kolkata. That wasn't shameless enough at all. Well, that's shame. That's as shameless as it's going to get right now. No, this is something that I can read off a bio, Sandy. Oh, the the three-month-old is... This is the first time I'm actually talking about it in public, so... Oh, okay. We feel special. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. I've taken a lot of inspiration from your work as well. Uh, and I've said this to you. I mean, you've been a big motivator and inspirer uh, thank along you the way. thank you so much so i don't think your uh, shameless introduction did justice to what you what you actually do and through this conversation i'd like to highlight <laughs> some of that and, and bring out your journey a little bit so uh, let's start from the beginning right like why food at what age did you get into it because i know you started later in life and it wasn't something that you officially studied can you run me through your journey from the beginning a little bit I mean, I, I guess late and early is is, is subjective, but uh, I got into food. I mean, I loved cooking. I didn't know if it meant it meant anything. You know, trying to take it in professional in any way, shape, or form. That started while I was eight or nine. I think I decided to bake a cake and tried. I burnt maybe half the house down, and it wasn't really a. You know, the, it's not a fictitious earth, story. It's, all, it's a true story. Uh, I'm sorry. Is this the earthquake? Yeah, yeah. It was that stupid <laughs> book uh, called The Earthquake Cake. And I saw it and I tried baking with it. And well, it didn't turn out anything close to being edible. 
uh, and I got banned from the kitchen. So the only time I would enter the kitchen is when my parents weren't around. But then I ended up mostly cooking more than more than really baking. But back then there were there was really no YouTube or access to the internet even. So I used to have these bunch of old English cookbooks called uh, the Good Food Books. I think that's what they were called. Oh, it was. They were written in the 1940s or 50s to teach people how to cook basic English recipes and baking and stuff. So they were divided into 12 volumes. So I'd pick up one of those books and start from scratch, right? learning some of those techniques. But that was pretty like basic. But I think I, and then along the way, I got interested in computers. So I started a web design firm when I was 14. And then that term morphed into a, uh, an automotive competent design and concept design company when I was 17. And I joined engineering school thanks to my parents. Not like I had a choice in the matter, but... You're the third guest I've spoken to who said the same thing. Well, what, do you, what can you say? It's part of the South Indian uh, ecosystem, no? We're mm-hmm. peer pressured into making sure that we're better than the neighbors, at least in position and the kind of college that you get into. But I'm not sure if that really mattered. Is that how you felt growing up, Sandy? I guess so. I mean, it's the last of three, two overachieving elder siblings... My sister is a surgeon, gold medalist from Rajiv Gandhi University. My brother is a four-pointer. He did his MBA in the US. And I went to engineering school only to drop out to start cooking. So, yeah, I mean, I was I was pretty conscious of that. <laughs> or at least I was, that was pushed down my throat multiple times uh, when I was younger. So, yeah. I mean, so, you, so, you, so, you go to engineering school. You, you attempt to leave it. I mean, you have this thought of leaving. I left it because I had a couple of accidents. The second one was I got caught in a tsunami and that kind of uh, left me. I mean, I was at home bedridden for almost seven months after that. And that's when I, I was working on my concept design firm. But then when I went back to college, I just couldn't relate to anything engineering for a while. So I turned to food because I used to do judo. So I didn't have anything physical to do either for almost like a good two years. I couldn't do anything that was strenuous. So the only thing that I felt like doing was cooking. And then one fine day, I went to visit my brother in the US. And this guy couldn't boil water to save his soul. Um, <laughs> and, and here he was baking and he was making all sorts of really cool things. He made a batch of brownies and that blew my mind. I loved brownies growing up. And then... I was like, well, if this guy can do it, I definitely can. Because I knew my culinary skills were definitely better than my brother's. But what changed that that made him suddenly... He had access to Food Network TV. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. he was watching recipes online and he was following them. And visual teaching is obviously so much more different than trying to read it off a book. You see techniques, you're able to compare. Correct. And that medium, I think, is what helped him learn baking, I guess. And then I took up baking with a vengeance. Well, it was basic baking. It's not like it was anything complex and then uh, in 2005 I think 2006 while I was still in math class I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do next and I wrote I was trying to write down names of a brand that I would eventually start and somehow so this you, name so you always always were entrepreneurial even like at 14 there was always a streak of yeah I guess wanting to do something yourself I mean I guess sucked at math and everything else so you had to do something <laughs> with your life right? <laughs> it's like I won't get a job anyway yeah, no one's yeah. gonna employ me I'm gonna find my own way sorry you were saying you were thinking of a brand name so yeah I scribbled a bunch of names and the name sinful something stuck and so we started a small uh, European style patisserie in 2006 December when I was 21, wow! out of a watchman shed, right outside my parents' house. And that's pretty much where it began. And I met Mansi in 2006, July, I think, just a few days after her birthday. My grand plan was telling her that I was going to 
start a dessert place. Obviously, it was in my good looks that I could lure her with, so it was chocolate. <laughs> so she was my guinea pig back in the day, and uh, that's pretty much how we met. And then conversations got a little serious more, because I was already thinking about what I wanted to do long term, and a lot of it had to do with my nonprofit that I want to work on once I'm retired. Correct. So two thousand six, man. I'm thinking I came back in two thousand. Nine. I started lofting in two thousand ten, and it was already very difficult in two thousand and ten to like find ingredients. Um, you know, it, it was a different landscape than it's today. What was it like for you to start, you know, a, a pastry brand in, from Chennai in two thousand and six? Yeah, I think Chennai is is always. I mean, it still continues to be a very different landscape than what a Bombay or a Delhi is, given that not just ingredients, right? I mean, I think we've not even been able to find, you know, access to basic produce that's that's half as decent as you would expect it to be even in say a bangalore or a hyderabad is that still a problem sandy yeah, it, it still is a problem yeah. across our entire landscape we we find this uh, you know to be a constant challenge 2006 obviously was no different but thankfully the market was so much smaller was more accessible so if you'd reach out to a supplier in delhi he'd be excited to to sell you stuff because consumption rates were obviously much lower and my journey accelerated fairly quickly. 2006, I started Sinful Something. 2008, I convinced, 2008 Jan, I convinced Mansi to open a cafe in her mom's old clothing store. And 2009, we started Sandy's. So by then, I had already failed at two restaurants. And then Mansi had opened her third one. Uh, and Sandy's opened in 2009. So it was quite a bit of action going on between the, the period of time. What do you think, you just said, you know, those two failed. What do you think led to the failure and what were your biggest takeaways from that? I guess one, I picked up a failed restaurant thinking that I could turn it around. Uh, I guess I had a little too much confidence in my ability. It was a terrible location. That's probably why it failed in the first place. The second one was was an attempt to do something with other people, which I don't think I, I completely understood relationships handling or or even just managing people's skill sets that are different than mine, I guess, to a large degree. And so I walked away from one of those projects. The other one, <laughs> shutting down was inevitable, I guess. We shut it down within six months of taking it over. And uh, yeah, so I was going for, when we opened Sandy's, I was going for broke. I was pretty much putting my last dimes into that because my parents were never, in, you know, they, they didn't approve of me being in food in the first place. But tell me something, right? Like you're you're at the stage where two restaurants that you worked with have failed. Mm-hmm. You're almost, you know, like you said, you're almost like broke, you have yeah. no money. You're broke and you're trying to open uh, another one. What is it that motivated you or gave you that courage to be like, even though these two have failed, I still can do this again? What was the story that you told yourself? It was, I, I guess, the naivety of youth. it's the best being young I made so many reckless decisions when I was young that I look back and now and I'm like wow that was great but I would never do it again was that was it the same for you I I guess look I mean I didn't have a fallback option the fallback would have been to go and do some boring thing that my parents were asking me to do at that point which is to join their business and they were they were waiting on the sidelines hoping that I'd fail so I can go back to doing that I knew they wanted me to succeed as a person, but I'm not sure they wanted me to succeed as a restaurateur or a chef or whatever. So I don't think they were, in fact, they were furious at the fact that I was now opening a restaurant on my own. And this time, I guess it was me putting my name on the door to show more more of my commitment. I was always scared of saying that I might lose interest in what I'm doing. So I wanted to make sure that, that I 
built something that that I couldn't back away from. I, I couldn't lose interest or focus on. And that's why I put my name on the door. And that's how Sandy's Chocolate Laboratory was born. And that was in 2009, April. And this is uh, a project that you did with Mansi or? No, no, this was just me. Uh, and Mansi's cafe by then was called Karma Cafe. Her parents had started this uh, brand called Karma T-shirts. Okay. I don't know if you've seen them. They're these Indian souvenir T-shirts. That, that oh my God, called. I used to love them. <laughs> yeah, that's what Mansi's parents started. Actually, her, Mansi's parents and Mansi's cousin who lives in Bombay, they, they're the ones who started it. And so they had a store where they were selling all of that. So we converted a part of that store into a cafe. I was vicariously living my dream through Mansi's parents' shop, I guess. We, we, we started that cafe on a dime. I mean, coming to think of it, I think I have I have crockery that costs more now than, than, we, got, <laughs> than we spent on the entire cafe. So, yeah. How was Sandy's different than the first two projects? Um, I guess Sandy's was me not listening to people. I didn't listen to what... Potentially, people were saying, you know, people are like, oh, you, you know, that's too expensive. Products are going to be really incredibly expensive. I'm like, you know what? You have to play to your strengths. I realized I had to make products that I would like eating regardless of how much they costed. And I believed that at some point people would come and buy it. And also it was, I remember the menu was 17 desserts and three changing savory things every day. It was really small. We didn't even have a proper stove. I remember baking in like Samsung home ovens back then. Samsung had just come out with these home baking ovens, I mean, uh, like convection ovens, and uh, an induction to top to make food. And that was that was all the equipment we had. And the idea was to try and focus on this whole chocolate experience. I realized that was something that we could, uh, you know, we could communicate and try and keep it different from what was going on. It was not just another cafe. So that's how Sandy's Chocolate Laboratory was born. And I remember, Sandy, when we were having a discussion. So I, so guys, for everyone, for you to know that Sandy and I met at Inc. And, you know, he's someone from the industry that I reach out to a lot when I have any doubts, questions, especially in this whole packaged food and shelf stable because he's, you know, done a lot of research in it. And all of last year, I think, or pre-COVID also, mm-hmm. I was just calling you. And crying, or that seems to be a recurring theme through this podcast. <laughs> I just keep talking about how much I've cried, but I kept. Um, and you helped me, you know. Um, you made this plan called the Low Fifteen Rocket Ship that you emailed me, <laughs> which I still, I still have to, I still have we to. We have get to work to. on that at some point. We have to work on that. But I remember during those conversations, you were talking about the things that you learned, or the mistakes that you made where money and finances in the restaurant business are concerned. Can you talk to me a little bit about that, please? Look, I mean, and I guess this is a this is a challenge that almost every chef, even a restaurateur to a large degree, faces, right? I mean, you're you you drive a project out of love, and that takes you know center stage when you're trying to create something. You come from it, you know, from from place of pure creativity or expression. Then you have to deal with the realities of finance and sustainability and and all of that, and that's when you you know you you tend to kind of rely on people whose skill sets complement you. Thankfully, in my case, once Mansi and I decided that you know it just doesn't make sense for us to turn two separate businesses, we should just combine our strengths and then go forward. That's when, I mean, by then we'd already made mistakes. I ended up hiring a CEO at that point who was getting paid more than I was taking home. But I realized that was a decision that needed to be made upfront. Because then I could focus on doing what I wanted to do, which is handle the food and then have somebody else run the business. And also I had someone in Mansi that could overlook some of these numbers and, and, you know, 
give me unbiased feedback on what I should and shouldn't be doing. How did that work for you, hiring a CEO and then just focusing on, how did that go? I mean, that was a game changer for me. Uh, I realized that here are professionals that were doing things that were dispassionately doing their job uh, while you focused on the things that mattered to you. And they focused on keeping this business alive. And sometimes it's about listening to these people, whether you like it or not. And, and their intention is to ensure that, you know, there is survivability of the business, right? And it's it's not about your ego anymore. So you do, you wear multiple hats as well, right? Like you, you are the chef of many places, you also run run them. Where does the passion flow towards? What are you most drawn to? The reason I, I decided to expand in food in 2012, I walked away from home uh, to get married to Mansi, and that was a tough decision, but I didn't have a choice. It was no longer about my ego or my creativity. It, it had nothing to do with things that uh, that I wanted to do. Now it was about survivability and saying this is the only way I could I could continue to do what I mean. That was the only place that would give me enough sustenance money, right? Um, and, and there was nothing else. And Mansi was willing to, Mansi was running her, her operation was fairly small, but whatever. I mean, it was, it was the only thing that I realized that I had to figure out how to make it work. And we didn't have really an option. So, so you, you basically, you know, married the woman of your dreams and well, now you've, you separated from your family and you have to figure out how do I survive? That's and that's, that's pretty much where it came from. So it wasn't really a question of saying, what was I passionate about? It was, what, what I was committed to at money. that point, yeah, right? Yeah, <laughs> it became a point of saying if I had to survive, I had to make some rational decisions, and these didn't have anything to do with the safety net of of something as simple as having a roof over your head. Correct. I was now paying rent uh, in an apartment, you know, that I could barely afford. I'm thinking about having to support another person in my life, and while well, Mansi is obviously the most non-demanding, she's incredibly supportive. But all that said and done, it's it's still she's still your responsibility. Right? I mean, at that point, having to make those decisions to ensure that we could survive. I think um, that was what was driving at that point, and it's not about you know, creative expression. I think that's when I switched from being a chef to a restauranter. Yeah, I think that's what I felt last year actually, because it was the similar situation where it was like do or die, right? And you have to be like, what do I? And then something just switches. And I think like going back now for me is going to be tough. But you also, I, I remember you at some point telling me, Sandy, that you reached a stage where there was many things that went wrong and things that, you know, that didn't play out the way you wanted them to. And then you turn things around for yourself. Can you run me through that whole part of your life and what happened exactly then? Look, while while I was talking about survivability, I was not going to let money rule my uh, my life in terms of saying I needed to make uh, X amount of money. Uh, I needed peace of mind. So even now, if I have to figure out a way to make sure if I have to pay somebody to ensure peace of mind, I'd rather pay that premium and, and enjoy uh, my sanity. And that's pretty much led a lot of my decisions. Like you said, I mean, most of us chef restaurateurs go through these journeys at some point where, you know, you'll have stakeholders that don't necessarily agree with your point of view and they don't necessarily look at it it's something that is a long drawn and people people get into this business thinking that there's quick money to be made up front and when those thoughts are not aligned and expectations are are different you're forced to make certain decisions and that was very similar to what happened to me and i was i was dealing with a bunch of investors that i wasn't necessarily comfortable continuing that journey on and so it made sense for us to either shut that business or buy them out 
So I, I worked out a structure where I could buy them out and get to keep that part of that business and continue on. And that uh, that was a that was an incredible moment, right? I mean, I remember when I when I when I walked out of that first meeting, it was a very heated discussion, and I realized that none of these people were looking, I you know, uh, things from my perspective. They refused to listen to me. Uh, I walked out of that meeting wanting to wanting to get hit by a bus or something. It's like you know what, I'm done. I I can't do this anymore. It's just so stressful. I don't have the support of my family. I have a responsibility of somebody that that's purely dependent on me. And then I have these investors that just don't seem to be wanting to listen to anything that I have to say at that point. Look, and I'm I'm not finding faults with them at all. I mean, it's their money. They're predicative to see how they want to grow that, and that's completely up to them, right? So we had to find a why media that made that made sense to everybody. And then once I realized that money was like paint on the wall, I walked away from from it before, so it didn't seem like a difficult decision to make at that point. So ended up. What, uh, what what lesson did you learn from that, Sandy? That carries on till how you work today. Manage expectations up front. We generally, as people that start something, we generally tend to project our confidence in a way that gets other people excited, but they don't see the hard work that goes into it. Sometimes they don't see the time frame that goes into it. Now I make sure I put all of that up front. I'm saying I'm. It's okay to say no to a collaboration or an investment or a partnership rather than string them along and then realize that these are not going to be converging paths, right? And then I realize that that's something that I probably do very differently now than I, than I did back then. I just make sure that if I don't feel like these paths are never going to converge, then there's no point of, you know, even starting on that journey. What were some of the biggest lessons that 2020 taught you? Think with your head and not with your heart. <laughs> I think more, I think I've used this line before in the past too, right? I mean, this is the year that that really taught taught me how to think with my head. Um, it was very difficult, and I think Pooja, we've we've talked enough over the last few yeah. few months, or rather, right from the beginning of the pandemic, we went through very similar, you know, journeys about having to scale down. Um, so we shut, I think, between April and May, close to eighty outlets, laid off eight hundred and fifty people. Wow. Yeah. And that was hard because a lot of these people are people that have been in the organization for a really long time. But it was a question of, you know, cutting off your your hand to save the arm, right? That sounds exactly like what I've been saying, Sandy. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. It, 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 it was. It, it, it was It was one of the, I mean, for me, it wasn't even, the, the scale wasn't as much, but it was one of the most challenging experiences of my life, right, to go through that. How did you tackle it? How did you go through it? What were you telling yourself through all of this? This By then, we already knew that, you know, we were expecting a baby. And then having to figure out survivability again, it felt like deja vu, right? It felt like 2012 all over again. <laughs> Just when I realized things were going up. Because honestly, at the beginning of March, I remember having this conversation with him saying, look, I know I'm working like a dog, but I can see some really great things in the horizon we were at 170 something outlets. Uh, yeah, I remember I, the last time I traveled was Feb of last year to Bangalore when we met. Right. And you'd got this amazing box of brownies and these tin boxes in this French loaf, right? French loaf. We bought the company yeah. and merged our business with that in 2019, September. And we just managed to start turning French loaf around at the beginning. And we were hoping to finish that Chennai launch by March and then start other cities subsequently and that's when consolidation had to happen right i mean so i remember we went from 170 something outlets down by around 80 something we shut about five brands 
almost all of Wang's kitchen was shot. Uh, we we shot maybe twenty or thirty French loaves. We shot sea salt. Really proud of that restaurant that had opened in Jan or December of the previous year. So we realized that we wouldn't. There was no way we would survive the summer because it was a predominantly dining experience driven business. We shot hutong. Um, we shot al kebab. We shot a restaurant called Hakkasan that we were working on. Again, it was just three months old. But we had to take those decisions. We had to shut things that we realized that that were going to sink more cash than than we were going to make, you know, by the end of the year. And uh, we had to make that call. What were the thoughts that were going on in your head, or what were you telling yourself through this um, this time? I'll tell you my experience. So in the in the very start, like maybe March, April. Uh, it just seemed like darkness it seemed like a lot of you know like when when i look back now i mean now it's all great and you know it's yay and everything's fine but march and april i have like you know things that i've written down and it was it really felt like there really is no light at the end of this tunnel was what i was thinking mm-hmm. and every night i would sit and i would try to think of how this would play out and honestly in my head nothing made sense Till I finally was like, okay, like you said, you know, cut that arm. So I was like, okay, let me at least start doing the the next best thing that I know I can do. Mm-hmm. Just cut costs as much as possible till I can start making some money, you know, do online classes, release eBooks, just do the next best thing that I knew to do. And then before I knew it, it was like June, July and time to start the kitchen, which I was so scared to do. But what were those months like for you, and what was the thought process that was going on in your head? I mean, I I can recall every one of our conversations during that period of time, and I think we were we were I mean we were literally talking to each other almost every week, right? I mean, I was yeah, and I think you were the listener then. I was sitting and and cribbing about everything that was going on in my life, and I was like, let's do ice cream, let's do franchise, <laughs> let's do this. Like every day, I was coming up with some new plan to survive. But also, you you're such a trooper, Pooja. I remember. I think it was week one of you going back to your kitchen and there were floods or something, right? And I remember you sending me a video and saying, "Well, this is what I'm I'm dealing with right now." That really took a lot out of you. I, I can I could tell. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, I'm so glad that you've 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 come out of that and you've not just come out of it. You've kicked ass and you're you're doing really well now. So that's that's awesome and it's really encouraging for you know others to see too, right? To know that there is, there are ways that if you can really strategize and put your head together, you can not just survive, but really excel at what what you're doing. And I, I think back in the day for me, it was just like living one day at a time. I was working 20 hours, I would say. And I remember maybe baking. I was literally baking every day because we were short of staff and bread was an essential product. So we switched. We almost shut down our entire patisserie line to just like maybe six products. And we were focusing so much on the the bread side of things, and that too we reduced it down to like the bare essentials. Uh, some of our brand sandies and uh, meze and all of them were doing meal kits, hoping that that could translate to people being able to feed more people in their family with lesser amount of money. So that was the focus. We realized everybody was was short on cash, and we wanted to make sure that they they found value in what they were buying, they found safety in what they were buying. So a lot of that was what we focused on. So every day was about trying to figure out what needed to be done for that day and the next day. And that's it. I didn't want to think past that. I wanted to obviously spend as much time as I could with Mansi, but I couldn't. I was literally out every day. I think I caught the bug sometime end May or early June or something. And then 
the first reaction was fear and panic, right? Because I'm not worried about myself, but then I have a wife that's pregnant. And so immediately got her tested, sent her to her parents' house. So I, you know, 15 days I was alone. That's probably the, the most difficult time that I went through because I couldn't smell or taste anything. And I was thinking, well, maybe it's the time for a career change right now because what can you do without without smelling and tasting, right? And there was no way I was just going to sit back and be another restaurateur that would just run, uh, you know, this business, right? So I guess that was really the most difficult time. And then finally, when I could start tasting coffee. The taste comes back, right? Like because It took the... me almost a good three weeks, I think, for it to start coming back looking back now at, at last year i mean do you see any silver linings do you think that um did you find any opportunities within the crisis what is the what is the take now look consolidation was helpful i mean like i said we had to make decisions with our heads so we cut costs like crazy uh we kept only the essential businesses open we knew the ones that would be gain profitability the fastest were the only ones that we kept open we shut regardless of how much capital had gone into some of these businesses hoping that at some point we'd we'd revive it or turn it around if need be. And that helped us gain profitability from August itself, and which for our scale over almost 100 outlets, that was pretty impressive, I think, what the team managed to do. So I I think the silver lining was, was is obviously learning to to focus, right? And I think as chefs and entrepreneurs, like you said, we, we, let, we cast a really wide net and we want to do so many things. And this was like going back to you know, to fishing with a pole in line. So you knew you had only one fish to catch and then you had to make sure that you gave it all your effort. Correct. And that helped. So we focused on our cafe vertical and our bakery business. We call that the cafe vertical. We started spending a lot of our energy there. And we started opening other businesses that were in limbo. We said there's no point of keeping on, you know, projects that were in limbo, you know, shut for too long. So we started new formats altogether. Beachville Coffee Roasters was one of those. We relaunched Sandy's as a completely new format in a, in a new location. It's the first time in 12 years that we opened a third location. Wow, in year years. one, I think, by the end of year one, we'd opened two locations and that's it. We didn't really expand from that. We just moved to larger formats within that same neighborhood. But this was the first time we were venturing into a new neighborhood altogether. We started expanding the bakery business. We started, you know, um, working on retail products. That side really started doing uh, doing pretty well for us, so... And I think that that really is the silver lining in saying, well, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? I mean, you you think back and you think, you make yeah. the right decision? Well, now you know. Yeah. Sandy, if there are people listening to this who want to get into the food business, want to open their own restaurant, <laughs> you're smiling. If you have to give, uh, you know, like your top three sort of pieces of advice, advice to them what would you say uh don't do it stay home be happy <laughs> don't let passion make that decision i think that's the that's one thing that a lot of restauranters i mean a lot of first time restauranters get into this thinking that you know they're very passionate about food or and and that's when they dive in and they don't realize what kind of commitment that this thing takes i mean the first crisis and passions out of the window right and then it's where it's commitment and <laughs> um if you're already coming from a place of of difficulty and crisis don't do it if you have a great support system then it's the first i mean then it, it's obviously fine right i mean you have a safety net to fall back on and then you have at least some some sense of comfort and definitely don't put all your savings into the restaurant business not the kind of business that i put all my eggs into for sure and do something that just because you're good at food doesn't make that 
the prime reason to start a restaurant? I mean, I know a lot of people who do it now as a lifestyle business. They want to do it because they they love the social element of it. There's nothing wrong with it. I mean, and that's those are the people that can do afford to do it, even if it fails. If you're going to go in completely based on you know your just emotion, then I would <laughs> definitely put some checks and balances to your emotion before you jump into the restaurant business for sure. Um, I don't know if those are three, but those are definitely the three that I would, I mean, those are definitely the points that I would consider. Definitely. And what I normally tell, because there's a lot of young bakers and a lot of people who want to get into the bakery business. What I tell them is like, you know, making a cake at home is great, but it's very different than doing something once and <laughs> the then having thing. to do hundreds and thousands of them every single day, day after day, even when you're bored of the same thing. Like it's, you know, it's it's challenging. So what I normally recommend is mm-hmm. go get an internship. You That's know, great like advice. Just yeah. go ask somebody in the industry, go work somewhere for two, three days. You'll just, even just on the weekends, you know, you'll understand what it really takes to be in a professional kitchen. And then if you like being in a professional kitchen and then running one and the business of it is right. a different ball game altogether. You know, that's the thing I say. I say, I can make a really good cake, yeah. But like making that cake every single day and then knowing how to market it, sell it, you know, make sure all of that, that is a different thing, so. And trusting and teaching other people to make it just like the way you did, right? And that's... The... I feel like we're dissuading people. <laughs> I don't think we should. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> it's like two, two, two jaded people sitting here like, <laughs> go, don't put all your money in it. <laughs> go, go do an internship. That's not, that's not what we're saying. We're saying we love it, but expectation settings, like hey, you said. Speak, speak for yourself. <laughs> I think I want, a, I want a career change at some point. <laughs> <laughs> Would you though? Do you? Yeah, absolutely. I think I'm on a move towards my non-profit very soon. So. I think I give myself five years. That's pretty much my timeline. When I'm 40, I want to quit and start working on my non-profit. Hey, same. What's your high five? Yeah, <laughs> five years. Let's see what we can do in five years. Okay, so last few questions, Andy. Mm-hmm. If there's something that you would never, ever do again, so hashtag never again, what would that be? I don't know, Pooja. Honestly, I I think everything that I've... I, maybe I would I would do less and spend more time on myself. But apart from that, I don't think I'd, I'd do anything that much differently. No, that's fine. You don't have to like... That's great. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a, a life well lived, right? If you could write a letter to your son today with three things you'd want to tell him, what would those be? Be a good human being. We talk about this often, so this is going to come off the top of my head. Okay. Being good is definitely the most important thing. Be as selfless as you can. And I say as you can, because sometimes people overdo it and at the cost of their own survivability. And that's not sustainable. Is that what you do, Sandy? I think so. I don't think I overextend, though. That's lessons learned when I almost went out of my way, helped somebody, got burnt, uh, and almost lost the plot with my own story. So um, so never again. <laughs> well, I st- it's not, okay, well, overextended. Oh, maybe that's, maybe, maybe overextending is probably the only never again situation. <laughs> I'm like, catch, come on, though. we have, <laughs> you have to, there had to be something, no? There had to be something. I mean, I have but so I many, still, you have to have I mean, one. Yeah, I mean, I, I you still, still, would you, yeah, okay. I okay. still help people, but. Okay, and the, and the... Third thing is fail. Fail as often as you can. And it's not about success. I think success is highly overrated. And people's measure and metrics of success is just changing so constantly. I think we shouldn't be so worried about the success as much, as much about failing and falling as we can. Because that's... I mean, if you're going to have fun failing, 
I don't think you have anything to be scared about. So yeah, be good, fail often, help selflessly as much as you can, not overextend. So those are the three things. Okay. And the last one, Sandy, what is the big picture for you? What do you see yourself doing? What do you want to do with the rest of what's left? Honestly, I think all of this is leading to a big change. You know, when, when I met Mansi, even when she was 19, I was 21. And the first conversation I remember was telling her that I have this grand plan of wanting to try and solve hunger at scale. And I wanted to do that when I was 40. These are the two things that I was very, very sure about. How I got there, what I did along the way, those are the variables. And, uh, and I also told her, I said, you know, I think literally on our third date, I was like, I'm going to get married to you. But I want to get married to you when, when I knew we would come halfway as people, as individuals. And there was not a timeline to it. And if I couldn't sustain our family at 40, then she would have to take that responsibility of, of keeping the family afloat. While I focused on putting at least the, the most useful years of my life into doing something that helped humanity in whatever way, shape or form. So I don't think that that's a moving goalpost because I've been at it for 20 years now. So I want to make sure that, I mean, whatever, I've been at it for 15 years and another five more years. And by 40, I want to start working on, on my nonprofit uh, to solve hunger. That's essentially why I got into the food business, I guess, at, at, in the way that we are right now. So That's beautiful, Sandy. And I want you to know publicly that I'm going to be a part of this in whatever shape, way or form. I want to be shamelessly asking you for (laughs) please, please, we must. And this is something that's that's super close to my heart as well. So I'm hoping that at 40, we're both retired. Yeah, I'll be in so you can come and visit. (laughs) And somehow making the world a better place. Thank you so much for this conversation, Sandy. Thank you so much for It was so much fun. I was so nervous about being on this puja. And then you were like, you know, it's just going to be us having conversation. I'm like, okay, well, maybe a million people watching it. Some point of listening to it, but no, it's just it's just us chatting, and hopefully, people that are listening can learn something from your incredible journey. And uh, that's about it. No sugar coat. Thank you, thank you. It was so much fun. That was Sandeesh Reddy in conversation with me, Pooja Dhingra, on No Sugar Coat. By the way, Love Fifteen now delivers across India, so go get your sugar fix at Love15.com. <laughs>